0: The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not reflect the official policy or position of the National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health, the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Podcasting from Rockville, Maryland, home of the National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health, a center of the Uniform Services University. We're the nation's academic center for education, training, and research in disaster medicine and public health. This is Disaster Dialogues, Perspectives from the Field, a monthly podcast where we meet with the disaster health experts to hear about their real-life disaster experiences. And now, here's your host and director of the National Center, Dr. Tom Kirsch.
1: Today we're joined by Edward Gabriel from the Department of Health and Human Services. Thank you for joining us, Ed. So when speaking to disaster responders, do you have recommendations you can give them regarding how to deal with all of this stress and the ways that they can stay focused, and engaged on the response?
2: It, it, that's, that's a terrific question. No one's immune. You're talking to somebody here who, who has seen lots of been involved in lots of difficult responses his whole career. Lots of them. Numbers of large plane crashes, you know, building fires, overturned trucks, two attacks on the World Trade Center, you know, the biological anthrax attacks in New York City. And, you know, I could go on and on. I like to think of myself um, as somebody who pays attention to a lot of the things that our people do. But one thing response people need to do better is to make sure that they don't think they're immune from the emotional distress that comes around these kinds of events. and when they think they can do that, they will destroy their lives, their marriages, their relationships, and it's so important you know we all have this sort of feeling that we're immune from this because we've doing it for so long, but we don't and Sometimes that will require somebody to say, you have to go see somebody, you know, because generally we think as response people, it's not going to bother us. But the reality is you just don't know that. And horrific events, and even significant events that are smaller, the death of a child in your care, um, you know, a family killed in a small plane crash. Um, I've seen these things and each and every one of those things affects a response person and they need to take it seriously and not think it's something that they can deal with themselves, especially if they begin to listen to the people around them that say you're behaving differently. That's sort of a big sign for me. I'm clearly not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but I've had thousands of people work for me and I can tell you that that is one of those things that we as response people in every area, whether it's a nurse, an EMT, a cop, a firefighter, a, a, a physician, then you're not immune. It doesn't go away. It is there and it needs to be dealt with. Even if it's just one time, find somebody, notice signs and symptoms, listen to the people around you and go get yourself some help. Or even maybe just a conversation.
1: Along the same topic, what can disaster managers do to protect their people from these events and these stresses?
2: Within our organization here at HHS, we've actually deployed resources to support um, these kinds of responders if requested after an event by our, our key um, people that handle PTSD and psychological resources. and. Um, psychological first aid training for leaders would be something we would support and think would be something that we could do that and our organization has a training program on that that you can contact us at PHE.gov and we'll um, we'll make sure we get that out to you. Listen, it doesn't fix it all some people just never get to that point where they're where they're comfortable to admit it again but it's it's like everything else the opportunity to have it in front of them makes it more difficult for them to turn away and just go aimlessly on. Um, So take advantage of the resources, that's what I would say.
1: You spoke earlier about the important role that citizens and civilians have in responding to disasters. How do you think we can better engage citizens to be ready to help respond or to be safe in these events?
2: Well, there's a number of different courses out there that you could use. uh, There's a Stop the Bleed program that has just uh, been moving across the country. Um, There is an awareness program that comes out of both the Red Cross and a number of those particular areas where some of those basic training courses are still there. Basic CPR courses are still out there for people to use. If there's, if there's an event and somebody has first aid training or stopping the bleeding training or CPR training or any of those kinds of training, I believe that they're more likely to interact than not. And some of it in the private sector, from my experiences, is great. You know, there's a number of different training programs about evacuation that many of the larger companies in the private sector are doing to make sure people know how to Get people out of buildings during earthquakes, and um, become leaders in terms of evacuation from space. And in some companies, they actually give go bags to individuals and um, for them to use during disasters. Um, Walt Disney Company, as an example of that, of are very well trained people because of the commitment on on the part of the organization to make sure that safety is of personnel and the people around you are the highest priorities. So. Yes, there's, there's things I would suggest they do. In the end, people are going to come and help. And that is, really, that is really what I've seen in my career. In every event ever, they're going to come and help.
1: This podcast is for disaster responders and disaster managers. Tell us what you think would be the primary lesson that you've learned that you would like to impart.
2: That's an easy question. And I'll just give you my personal feedback on that. If you're an emergency manager or an emergency response person, and I include everybody, including hospitals in that group, you need, to, you need to talk to each other. You need to be inclusive around your planning. You need to exercise all of that stuff that you think you need to do during a disaster together. If you don't consider everybody at the table, you will miss things. When it comes to disaster response, now you may miss things anyway, but if you don't have the right people around you when you're trying to manage a response or coordinate a response, then you will you will inevitably miss something that you should have paid attention to and that will cause you uh, the ability to not to respond as effectively as you can and I've seen that in real life so you try to be inclusive. Public health issues are not without public health issue responses are require emergency management, emergency medical services, fire, EMS, um, transportation, gas company, water company, transit company, cum- Coordination, otherwise you don't necessarily have the best fit for an overall response event, especially if it's of a significant nature. You know, and, and it takes time to be open and, and inclusive rather than trying to be siloed and exclusive. So that would be my number one sort of preaching on this, is that bring everybody to the table and make sure you they all have a voice. And then you'll succeed in, in the way you respond to things. Exclude and you may fail in certain areas.
1: Speaking on a more personal preparedness level what bit of advice would you give to responders to make them better ready to respond?
2: Oh I think that's another easy question. You need to practice the way practice and prepare the way you're gonna respond. So. If you're going to run a response exercise, it needs to have all the players that would be responding with you. You can't, you can't practice an event of a response and exercise that in a vacuum. So you do if you're doing a hospital disaster drill response, you need to include the emergency response people that are going to come to your institution to support you during that event. The presumption that they will be there may not be a legitimate presumption if you don't know. So I'm always about take your stuff out of your boxes, move patients like you really would move patients, triage patients in a hospital emergency setting like you would normally triage a patient. Test your plans, but practice them in a realistic way, not just checking a box that I did it this year and everything is sunshine and peppermint. So practice the way you, practice and play the way you would expect for a real event. There's commitment there, commitment. The commitment is both monetarily and staffing-wise. You don't have to do crazy things, like respond through the streets with lights and sirens. You can project some of those things. Um, I've seen in my career, not necessarily in New York City, but in other places across the world where an event occurs and there's 15 ambulances, 25 trucks, and 40 police cars already at the scene. Well, that's fantasy. Fant- the reality is, the scene occurs, it's going to take an hour to get the rest of those assets there, at the very least. So practice, so practice that way. Either have them sit on the side while you time them in, you know what I mean? Or, and including that would be emergency departments. You're not going to get a stream of, of a handful of maybe emergency response people to come and do decon for you in your emergency department because that's your plan, when the reality is that fire asset may in fact be engaged doing decon in the streets. So how do you, you got to know that. So they have to be included in the process. And our emergency nurses and emergency docs are all first responders in my mind. They're always on the front line. They don't know what's coming through that door, just like a responder doesn't know what they're going to be confronted with when they're in the field. So practice it that way.
1: Excellent. What keeps you up these days? What are the biggest health and public health preparedness threats that you think this country faces right now?
2: Well. I mean, when you, look at the, when you look at threats across the nation, you know, we have naturally occurring events all the time. And every event, whether it's an emerging infectious disease or a naturally occurring event, affect the health and well-being of people. As we've gotten more technological as a nation, there are many more people home on technologies that normally years ago either didn't exist or quite frankly, um, people would stay in hospitals for. But now they're on the home on dependent technologies. Now that's great for them because it's appropriate, but from a response perspective, when the power goes out, whatever technology they're on has got a battery. And when that battery goes dead, whether it's a ventilator or a pump of some type, that patient's at very high risk. So, We've put together a number of different programs here that actually provide real key information uh, to states, regions, and communities that allow them ahead of time to know how to plan for this in cooperation with our partners within HHS um, CMS. Uh, And it's called Empower, Empower, and you can find it on our website which I'll talk about at the end. But I'm concerned always about The world's changed. Emerging infectious diseases that were in one part of the world now could be here in the United States if infectious in eight hours or ten hours. The way our worlds travel, that disease could be in China tomorrow or in in Europe right now and be transmitted into a location within the United States. Those are very difficult things to plan for if you're looking particularly on the. health and medical and public preparedness side of these things because sometimes it takes us time to build the tools to manage that and as things emerge internationally they don't have the same visibility as it would putting my old EMS hat back on where you see an event and you go to it and you manage it even it may take you years but you still manage it but you know where it is many of these things Uh, that are emerging uh, coming from different parts of the world, or maybe even from within the United States, whether they be purposeful or unpurposeful, um, may in fact have no such specific location to go to, or you have to try to isolate that and figure out where that's coming from. And from an emergency response perspective, it's a little different. You have to capture groups of impacts, tie them together, and realize, gee, we got something going on here. And that takes time, and time is not your friend in those circumstances. So yeah, from a health and medical side, of response to this, these kinds of things, we have great systems to look at these things now, um, well, certainly a lot more sig- significant than
1: they were 20 years ago. Excellent. What can people do at home to prepare?
2: There's two things that I've learned from my years of experience. One of those, even as a responder who's engaged in an incident, our first concern is always our families. That's the first thing. I can tell you every responder that had a moment after any large event that I've ever responded to wanted to make sure to they get to their families so A, they can find out whether their families were safe, everyone was accounted for, and B, uh, that they could tell them that they were safe. Um, and I expect that citizens also have those same feelings. So make a plan. There's lots of things on the, on the net, including rphe.gov, that can help you make that plan. But some of them are very basic and don't necessarily relate to big disasters. I can't tell you the number of times i responded to an incident looking for an address and the light bulb's out and it's evening and I can't find a location. Those extra minutes make a huge difference. Have a plan on where you're going to call each other from. You know, phone systems go down. However, if you pick an outside number or even an 800 number with a tape on it where you can, somebody can leave a message that says we're all okay, do that. Medically, if you take medicines, get your docs to give you a little bit of a supply that you keep. I always do in my bag whatever medicines I know I may need. Now, I may not necessarily be thinking I'll be caught up in a disaster. It may be a weather-related incident and I can't get home for two days. So, And I'm at work, stuck here, so I need that. My eyeglasses, um, because I'm pretty much blind as a bat without them, and everyone who wears them forgets about them until there's an incident, and then all of a sudden you get dust and muck in your eyes, and you are are essentially blind because you don't have a spare. Um, Your contacts will have to be thrown away, and you don't have your glasses. Plan, put together a bag, keep it in your car, keep it in your house. Follow the basic tenets of all those kinds of things. You can find more about this on PHE.gov, which will connect to FEMA. And by the way, if you have a pet, make sure you have some extra stuff for them um, to take care of them, too. How quickly are you going to move them? And, and, you know, people, people, from my experiences, tend not to want to be sheltered without their pets. So you need to have a plan for them. What do they eat? Um, they're going into a new environment. So it's a twofold thing. People won't go to shelters without bringing their pets. And subsequently, they keep themselves and their families in places potentially at risk because they have no plan for them. Um, So if you like your pet like I do, um, you probably want to include them in the planning effort. That kind of connection, planning for evacuation, having those kinds of bags, putting together the medicines, and more can all be found on our website, PHE.gov.
1: Where should people go to learn more about the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness Response, or ASPR as we call it? So, we have a terrific website,
2: publichealthemergency.gov or PHE.gov. You can go to that website. It's, it's the ASPR website. And it'll, it can connect you with not only our federal partners, but also connect you with the latest and greatest in terms of what we're seeing, where are issues, all the training and first aid kinds of things that we were talking about earlier. And it'll allow you to use that website for for information about that Empower program I told you about or a program we call Tracy, which is primarily made for providers to be able to look up the latest and greatest on treatment modalities for particular types of things. From everything from hospital emergency incident command to. Um, the management of ambulance services and deconing. It's got a range of of things, all free, uh, to the public to make sure that there's things that, access points that they can get to. It'll connect with our partners within CDC and FDA and um, literally FEMA and across the the federal family. It's a terrific asset and resource. PHE.gov.
1: Thank you for joining us for our inaugural episode of Disaster Dialogues: Perspectives from the Field and thank you, Mr. Gabriel, for taking the time to share your experiences with us. Please join us next month for our second episode.
0: Thanks for listening to Disaster Dialogues: Perspectives from the Field. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address www.usuhs.edu forward slash ncdmph or just search for NCDMPH. Also, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at NCDMPH. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous episodes. This has been an NCDMPH USU production. Join us next time for another edition of Disaster Dialogues Perspectives from the Field.